The feed, poultry, and meat industries gather every January at the International Production and Processing Expo, what organizers describe as the world's largest annual poultry, feed, and meat technology exposition. More than 32,000 attendees came to this year's expo in late January, where they discussed topics ranging from the global markets to animal disease outbreaks and international trade issues. One attendee, the new president and CEO of the American Feed Industry Association, was particularly interested in how those issues and discussions affect the nearly 700 domestic and international companies and organizations her association represents. Welcome to Feedstuffs in Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at the big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we hear from Constance Coleman, AFIA's new chief executive, to get her first impressions of the state of the industry just months into her tenure. We'll also talk with Brian Ernest, a commodity analyst with IHS Market, about the status of the poultry markets and his outlook for broilers, eggs, and turkeys in 2020. This episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by Hogslat and Georgia Poultry. New for 2020, the Classic Pullet Feed Pan. Built to handle the most aggressive birds, the Classic Pullet features an anti-rotation clip, feed shutoff slide, and a shallow divided pan. You can learn more at hogslat.com. Dating back more than 100 years, the American Feed Industry Association represents livestock feed and pet food manufacturers, integrators, pharmaceutical companies, ingredient suppliers, equipment manufacturers, and companies that supply other products, services, and supplies to the feed industry. Constance Coleman joined the association last July and took the reins of the organization on the retirement of past President Joel Newman at year's end. Feedstuff's publisher Sarah Muirhead sat down with Coleman during IPPE to talk through a variety of feed industry issues. Let's listen in on their conversation. Hello, everyone. Sarah Muirhead with Feedstuffs. I have with me Constance Coleman, President and CEO of the American Feed Industry Association. And you came on board, you've been on board about a month now. I know you came in earlier and you did a lot of touring around of members and meeting people and listening to some of their concerns and, and some of the opportunities out there. So give us a little bit about your background, Constance. Well, I actually come from many different parts of the ag industry. I've spent my whole career in food and agriculture, and it's been a wonderful way to, to spend my life. Um, but I have actually had experience in academia, government. I worked for USDA Foreign Ag Service for a little while. Um, farmer organizations, Farm Bureau was a great place to, to have the early part of my career. And then also private sector So and, and foundation work. Um, so you could say I, I wanted to try it all, Sarah, but I found my home back with AFIA and, and advocating for U.S. food and agriculture. And you have done a number of plant visits and customer visits. How have you found the industry to be? The industry is a fascinating one. The, the, the thing I like so much about our sector is just the diversity within the, the feed industry and pet food industry. When you take a look at the players that we have innovating on new ingredients and new innovations that will help us create better health for animals, but then also meet some of our external challenges, such as environmental, combined with folks who really know how to put together all of those things and provide that complete diet uh, for the health and efficiency of, of animals. It's a fascinating sector. Of course, one of the big things that AFI is involved in is helping on the, the policy side of things. You gave a discussion here at the IPPE show on trade. Give us some of the highlights from that. 
Well, the, it's a dynamic time, obviously. We've been going through a lot of disruptions in our normal trading patterns, of course, with the, the tariff, tariff uh, levies on China uh, and now the EU. And then, of course, starting out um, the last few years with uh, the tariffs between Canada and Mexico. So there's been a lot of fluctuation, obviously. We've come to the home, uh, hit some home runs, I think, with the signing of USMCA. Uh, now we'll just wait for Canada to complete its ratification. Uh, of course, the phase one agreement of China, on China, huge for the animal feed sector. Um, it accomplished many of our objectives and, and addressed many of the challenges we've had. You know, Sarah, we have not been able to register a new product to export ingredients to China since 2011. Um, so we're very pleased to see that that has been resolved and hopefully within a month, uh, we'll be able to begin submitting through FDA registrations, um, for facilities to be able to export to China. Two other big things that have been causing us a lot of angst in the industry that were addressed, uh, were the, was the ban on ruminant ingredients and the ban on ingredients that contain poultry products. So again, three big wins uh, for our sector. Uh, there was also some approval of feed ingredients and a pathway forward for future improvement. Now we're to the implementation stage, of course, and that, of course, is where the rubber meets the road, as we all know. Um, so we're really excited to have a, an administration, um, if FDA is looking to work with us to be able to implement that. Any additional challenges ahead in these next phases that you want to see addressed? Well, I think uh, for the China um, phase two is we haven't really turned our attention to that uh, quite yet because that will not happen until after the election, is, as has been signaled from the White House. Um, but we also are taking a look at the next phase for Japan. Uh, we will be moving to SPS issues with phase two in Japan, and that's a big area of, cons of interest to us. Of course, the EU. Uh, who knew that we would be so ambitious as to say by the end of the year, some sort of partial agreement. And that's something actually that's very new to our U.S. trade strategy, doing these partial agreements. Before, we've always been focused on comprehensive, but we are interested to see if feed can play a role in this partial negotiation with the EU. If we could get some reasonable standards set and identified for the efficient trade a feed and feed ingredients, it will go a long way towards helping us in other parts of the world as well. Um, of course, the UK is having a hard exit on Brexit. Um, and so I think that also positions us well uh, with a longtime, of course, friend and ally and trading partner, um, the UK. But let's not forget, we've got India, uh, we've got uh, Africa, and of course, the announcement that Kenya will be a template for how we do business and trade agreements with Africa. It's going to be a whirlwind, <laughs> Sarah. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've also seen a lot of um, easing of regulations by the current administration. Is that, um, how's the feed industry dealing with that? Is that a good thing? Or? Well, I, I would like to say that it is. Um, unfortunately, we really haven't necessarily seen a lot of that uh, with the agencies that we interact mo the most with. Um, FDA has not tackled that quite as aggressively as some of the other agencies. We have lots of ideas uh, and lots of suggestions. In some areas, we're looking for new regulations to be developed that make it uh, a predictable pathway for some ingredients. 
Um, but at the same time, there are redundancies, there are outdated regulations, and there are a couple that are even conflicting regulations that we have to address. So we would like to see that be a more active uh, thing there at FDA. Um, but we also know that we are work working with a somewhat resource constrained agency until just recently. And you had a big win when it came to funding for animal food ingredients here recently. Give me some details. We did. Um, the FDA has been taking approximately five years to review feed ingredients and even longer for drug approvals. Um, you compare that to what we're seeing in, the, in Canada at 18 months, in the EU at two years, and it's really putting us at a competitive disadvantage. FDA acknowledges that, um, but they've had a workload that has exceeded their capacity. In the last appropriations bill, we were excited to receive, um, see some additional funding going to FDA uh, to hire some more technical support and administrative support for moving those ingredients uh, review through more quickly. So we also obviously understand it may take a little while for them to get up to speed and get those folks on board, but we do believe that's a huge win, and we are looking forward to a more uh, expedient uh, system back closer to what it needs to be for U.S. competitiveness to, to, to move forward. Looking overall, what is your vision for AFIA? That's a, it's a big question, uh, Sarah, but I would say that AFIA is an incredible organization with a talented leadership and talented team. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, to meet and understand just how deep that talent is uh, with AFIA. We're poised to actually really take a step out and be a thought leader on issues such as sustainability, uh, trade, and the international um, issues that are out there affecting our industry and our ability to not only export but import uh, products. So we want to take a much more active role in being a thought leader internationally on the feed industry. Um, but you know, sustainability is a big one, Sarah. And I, my vision, uh, the vision of our leadership and the and the support and, and input of our team, indicates that we need to really remind people that the feed industry and agriculture is a solution for some of the challenges we have in sustainability, not a problem. And we need to start talking about that value proposition of how we can actually be a part of what improves uh, air emissions, our climate situation, uh, but more importantly, uh, the ability to sustainably meet the future generation's needs for food and fiber. Thanks to Feedstuff's publisher, Sarah Muirhead, for an insightful discussion. And thanks to Constance Coleman of the American Feed Industry Association for sharing her insights and vision for the industry. We'll look forward to our next conversation. This episode of Feedstuff's In Focus is sponsored by Hogslat and Georgia Poultry. New for 2020, the Classic Pullet Feed Pan. Built to handle the most aggressive birds, the Classic Pullet features an anti-rotation clip, feed shutoff slide, and a shallow divided pan. You can learn more at Hogslat.com. Com. During the International Production and Processing Expo in Atlanta each year, Feedstuff's editors visit with dozens of leaders and experts about the latest research and analysis on animal disease issues, production trends, and policy issues. Editor Chris Welshens sat down with market analyst Brian Ernest of IHS Market to take the pulse of the broiler, egg, and turkey sectors. Brian, could you provide us a brief overview of what uh, 2019 was for the broiler sector? and then where we might be headed in 2020. Sure. Um, so 2019, we, we saw expansion uh, overall for broiler meat production in U.S., um, roughly a 
two and a half to three percent increase in, in overall production numbers. Um, the, the bulk of the, the growth uh, showed up in the tail end of the year um, as we had additional capacity come online um, in, in, US, uh, uh, in the U.S. system. Um, and looking at the numbers, uh, you know, what, what USDA is publishing um, in, in a statewide data, if you drill it down to that level, the bulk of the growth um, really in 2019 occurred in two very strong states, uh, Texas and, and North Carolina. Uh, have, have become much bigger players in, in overall broiler meat production in, in 2019 when you compare it with a year ago. Um, overall, looking at, at uh, domestic disappearance numbers, um, we, we saw a better presence for dark meat uh, moving through domestic channels. Um, there's there's a, a little bit of a growing consumer preference towards dark meat that's starting to show up in the data. Um, and in addition to that, wing prices were very, very strong in 2019 uh, when you compare it with, with a year earlier, um, which helped support uh, the overall cutout valuation um, and, and offset some of the, um, the, the dampening effect that happened from breast meat prices in, in, in 2019 uh, when, when we're looking at the margin situation. Uh, overall, the, the feed price environment um, was was relatively neutral um, when you compare it with a year earlier. There were some crop disruptions early on in the season, um, some late planting issues that, that uh, contributed to um, some uh, some stronger prices during the, the middle of the, um, the growing season for corn and soybean meal, or for soybeans. Um, but, but overall, the effect um, was relatively neutral on, on prices for feed. So um, that, uh, you know, that, that in itself uh, kind of kept the, the margin situation in a, in a positive situation for, for the majority of the year uh, for U.S. broiler integrators. Um, and, and finally, just really the export environment was relatively flat for 2019 when compared with a year ago, but, but we have seen improvements there. Uh, that have aided the, the light quarter prices and, and overall those prices were up around 20% uh, in 2019 uh, just due to, to improved domestic and export disappearance. So, so what's ahead for 2020? Um, I think in terms of production um, we anticipate we'll see somewhere around two and a half to three percent growth again um, which is you know two back-to-back -back years of uh, I'd say modest to aggressive growth. Um, there's potential there as We've seen additional capacity come online, um, and the capacity that's coming online um, has technological advances in it that um, aid to, to growth being a little bit stronger than, than what we've seen in years past. Uh, the bulk of the growth is, is, uh, is showing up in the front half of the year uh, in 2020, whereas it was in the back half of the year in 2019. Um, in, in terms of what we're forecasting, we anticipate some of the margin compression uh, that can come with a, a lower price environment will uh, start to deter growth during the middle uh, middle part of 2020. Um, might show up with some issues once we get into the tail end of the year. Um, in terms of the price environment, uh, broiler integrators kind of got a gift in 2019 with wing prices where they were at. Um, we anticipate that we'll, we'll still have a, a strong wing price environment in 2020, but not quite as strong as what it was uh, last year. Um, we think the, the supply system will get caught up a little bit after we get through March Madness um, and, and as, we, uh, as the, the industry starts to build inventories during the summer months this year. 
Um, not as hopeful on, on breast meat prices. Um, we, we still think there's going to be considerable pressure on, on breast meat. Uh, specifically from the jumbo plants, um, it, it seems like there's not as much of an issue clearing product from the medium-sized segment, but um, uh, from the big bird segment, there, there's um, some issues that are starting to show up. Um, and lastly, just looking at the export environment um, for uh, for U.S. broiler integrators, there's obvious optimism over the uh, the addition of China as a direct market uh, for U.S. broiler integrators. Again, um, this is a market that we have not had direct access to since 2015. So, um, you know, it, there's there's uh, there's reason for optimism there. But for now, the opportunity looks limited to the traditional parts and pieces that that are exported, which is paws and and other various uh, low value items to China. So. Um, the optimism we think might be a little bit overdone um, when, when you look at uh, the opportunity overall for, for 2020, but um, clearly a, a kind of an unknown in terms of what that prize can be uh, for, uh, for U.S. broiler integrators. African swine fever has dominated the global meat headlines. Uh, how do you see that impacting the U.S. broiler industry or will it impact the broiler industry um, moving forward? Um, so in, in terms of biosecurity measures, uh, you know, I, I think um, the overall global livestock um, continues to learn from uh, events and outbreaks like this. I think there's an opportunity there to, to continue to learn um, supply chain management and, and the, the, you know, the, uh, in terms of the production side of it as well. Um, but in terms of the market opportunity, uh, you know, Brazil has, has really kind of stepped in as a stronger player. Um, and capitalize on the, you know, the, uh, the, the very difficult situation that, that China has with um, having enough protein to, uh, to, fill, to fill their needs. Um, I don't see as much opportunity for U.S. broiler integrators, but um, still a much stronger opportunity than there has been in, in recent years as a result of the, the protein deficiency there. Um, if you look at domestic poultry production in China, um, we've seen a rather rapid an aggressive uh, ramp up in terms of their output over the last uh, year and a half as they've recovered from their own HPAI outbreaks in, in 2016 and uh, in 2017. So um, still, um, you know, optimism there, but not as, uh, you know, not as much maybe as being uh, planted out in the, the industry at the moment. Woody breast syndrome is an issue that the U.S. broiler industry has had to deal with over the last year or so. Um, what is the current status of that, and uh, what do you see could be taking place in that area? Um, it's not maybe as forefront as it was back in 2016. Um, it, you know, it, it seemed like every every time you turned around, there was <laughs> another uh, article or, or you know, instance that was being reported, um, and really the industry has reacted um, and tried to find ways to kind of counteract um, the instances. Um, I think one of the reasons we don't hear as much about it now is there's a growing preference for dark meat uh, in domestic markets, but, uh, you know, also there's uh, there's been more... Um, more of the consumer-facing channels have taken another look at um, the product offerings that they have and have have reacted to um, uh, to provide a more higher quality product that has fewer instances of, of woody breast and um, so you know we're not hearing as much of it but we still know it's prevalent in the uh, the large birds um, more prevalent in large birds 
Um, and part of uh, the industry moving uh, a, a large portion of the production away from um, use of antibiotics has contributed to lower bird weights and, and uh, effectively uh, helped work towards moving away from the woody breast instances. If a wild card were to pre present itself in 2020, what do you foresee that could be? Um, for the markets, I, I still think um, you know there's there's more talk and, and we're seeing more marketing around um, the alternative meat segment um, or the meat alternative segment, um, which could present itself as a wild card here in, in 2020 as a as a big disruptor in, in terms of what consumers are uh, are are looking for um, for their protein offerings. Um, we saw this kind of show up in January. Uh, when we think about New Year's resolutions, uh, you know, sustainability and and in uh, um, the, the the health of, of humans has kind of worked its way into more marketing offerings of um, those those alternative uh, proteins, which I, I think in and of itself has some implications on an overall chicken uh, disappearance in, in 2020. Moving on to the egg sector, what was the biggest story in 2019? Um, well, I think if you look at the consumption numbers, uh, they, they just really didn't keep up with uh, the expansion and production that we saw uh, in 2019 overall. Um, when we look at table egg production, first quarter totals were up you know, between 4 and 5% when compared with a year earlier. Um, and, and overall, um, 2019 table egg production was up 3% compared with a year earlier um, and, and it appears that uh, consumers have, have just gotten very used to seeing uh, a low price environment at the shelf uh, in 2018 um, those those retail price points at below a dollar per dozen really encouraged uh, expandable consumption um, but it, that that degree of um, enthusiasm has has largely worn off this year the egg industry saw some price improvements in the fourth quarter versus the first half of the year. Could you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, we you know we typically see um, that the seasonal buys, uh, specifically with the table egg side or the shell egg price environment, in, in, in encourages um, a tighter market and, and premiums uh, that work their way into the spot market. Um, it, it didn't. Uh, work its way, uh, that, that tightness didn't work its way into price premiums as significantly in 2019 as we saw in years past. Um, however, we did have a nice little run up in prices and a rally uh, ahead of, uh, of buying for, uh, for Christmas. So there, there was a, a little bit of a price improvement uh, with USDA table egg prices moving from the mid 70 cent per dozen area uh, to a high in the, the 150 area. So moving on to 2020, what do you believe is ahead? The, the layer flock uh, was most recently reported around 340 million head um, on December 1st, and we anticipate that we'll see uh, a moderate reduction in overall layers uh, as we move through the first quarter of the year in response to um, a really uh, very strong margin compression that, uh, that evolved uh, during 2019 overall. Um, it, it's yet to be seen whether this will result in some uh, price improvement once we get through uh, the midpoint of the year. But for now, uh, we do anticipate we'll, we'll continue to see a low price environment. The industry's transition to cage-free has been something we've been tracking for a few years. Uh, where did, where's the industry currently 
on meeting the commitments that have been made. So of those 340 roughly uh, table-like layers, USDA reported the cage-free flock up around or sitting around 70 million layers on the most recent report, uh, which is is showing a continuation of moderate growth, um, still uh, still lagging behind the the growth potential that's needed to meet the majority of the commitments that were provided by um, you know by industry players by 2025. Um, interestingly, we've seen more state level legislation. Uh, that's been implemented over the last two years um, that, that actually continues to contribute to uh, growth in cage-free production. Um, the other thing that we're noticing is that uh, while there's really strong volatility in spot markets for, uh, for shell egg prices, um, the, the cage-free pricing environment is relatively steady, at least as reported by USDA. Um, somewhere around $1.56 per dozen. So, um, you know, while there's discounting that's being shown up in, in the conventional or the conventional egg market, uh, it's, it's not leaning back as much on the, the cage-free side. With the lower prices that we've been seeing in the retail space, have you seen consumer demand shifting more towards cage-free eggs? Well, we're, we're seeing, um, at least at the retail uh, level, more consumer, uh, or some of the consumer behavior is reacting um, to the future activity, which is more heavily focused um, on cage-free, but also the brown cage-free. Um, that really arose uh, over the last two years, um, but it's helped support the segment in terms of the growth that, um, that, that needs to come into the system. Um, uh, to, to support the overall expansion that's needed to meet the commitments. Um, we're seeing it on the further process side too with a lot of uh, at least uh, the hotel and restaurant industry um, providing commitments and, and really bolstering the egg product side um, in an effort to, to grow that, that overall production and segment. As far as a wild card for the egg sector, what do you believe that could be in 2020? I think for at least the production side of things, uh, we anticipate that you know growth is going to be relatively moderate, um, maybe net neutral uh, in, in 2020. Uh, if, if we see uh, some of the legislation, especially looking at California and the Prop 12 measures, um, providing an, an, a boost to overall demand, um, and specifically on the egg product side, um, that that is, is likely going to encourage prices um, in both the shell and the, uh, the further process segment. So really when we look at some of these commitments that are being made at the state level, they, they have uh, the opportunity to provide a pretty big impact in terms of uh, availability of, of eggs and egg products in 2020. In addition to providing his outlook for the broiler and egg sectors, Ernest also discussed what's happening in the turkey business. Um, so the turkey industry's had a, uh, a difficult set of years, um, really since the HPA outbreaks, um, uh, you know, back five years ago. Um, and we've seen, <clears throat> um, if you look at the holiday disappearance, the traditional offering has been a turkey at the table for Thanksgiving. Um, and over the last three years uh, at retail, um, really hams have kind of stepped in as, as being an alternative offering that have been very attractive. Um, in, in 2019, however, the, um, the opportunity for 
U.S. pork exports to China um, really spurred some optimism in domestic markets, and we saw uh, as a result there was a pretty significant premium on hams um, back in March, April, May timeframe, which is typically when procurement's looking uh, for their to lock up their their needs for Thanksgiving. Um, what we were looking at that time was the differential between whole birds and hams. Um, and, and it looked like there was a significant opportunity for um, U.S. retailers to move through product, uh, move through whole birds um, during the holiday time frame, that, that offerings were going to be much more competitive uh, for turkeys in, in 2019 than they were um, in the, the three years past. Um, and, and really that resulted in some very strong clearance uh, during the holidays. Um, I think the, the industry moved through more product uh, remove product from cold storage through consumer channels, uh, more product in 2019 than they had uh, since 2013. Um, so, so actually, there's, there's, I would say, some pretty strong optimism uh, in the tur throughout the turkey industry right now, um, just given the, the the improved clearance that we saw around the holidays, um, and also uh, citing some some improved domestic and export disappearance for turkeys in the in the further process segment um, during 2019 there was um, uh, you know a, a, a stronger uptick in overall exports um, still the bulk is going to to mexico from us to mexico um, but that lift is expected to continue in in 2020 um, and provide an additional opportunity for disappearance. Um, largely the opportunity is on dark meat, um, but also we're seeing it on, uh, uh, on, on wings and, uh, and drumsticks, or drums headed to, uh, headed to Mexico as well. So, um, you know, there, there's uh, actually quite a bit more optimism for 2020 for turkey producers than, uh, than we've had in a, in a couple of years. So. You mentioned that there could be changes um, happening in the industry for 2020. Can you uh, provide those and kind of where you think the sector is headed through the rest of the year? Yeah, we anticipate there will be um, uh, less production availability for whole birds um, for the, you know, for holiday offerings in 2020 than there was in 2019. Um, I've already seen reports that one uh, major processor has uh, has elected to shut or to to stop bagging at uh, at one of their operations. Um, we, you know, that that could happen in in uh, multiple for multiple other producers as well. Um, but in addition to that, uh, we've seen um, the preference towards further processing and the the big toms um, has has led to um, uh, increase in overall average live weights. Um, if you look at the production numbers, I, I think uh, uh, overall throughput was down roughly three and a half percent in 2019, um, but it was offset by a roughly a three percent increase in average live weights, which is a pretty strong advance uh, in, in terms of adding, uh, you know, an additional weight to the bird, largely due to the uh, the growth in, in further processing demand. If there was a wild card for the turkey sector, what would you foresee it would be? Um, I, th I think uh, you know we're we're, we're looking at um, uh, better domestic and export demand, um, and you know a, a relatively flat overall production outlook in 2020. Um, so in terms of, of the wild card, it, it actually uh, probably provides a little bit more optimism um, than uh, than we've had in years past, and you know. It, 
there, there could be something that, that even limits beyond uh, uh, those measures in terms of the amount of production available. Uh, this industry has, has really struggled with having uh, those, uh, those starter antibiotics that the turkeys need uh, to get past the, uh, the early stages of life. Um, if there's some improvements that are made in those early stages, we could see production ramp up a little bit more aggressively in 2020 than, uh, than we're anticipating. Brian, where do you see prices going in 2020 for turkey? Um, when we look at the whole bird prices, uh, really the market's kind of being set uh, the bottom for 2020, um, kind of in the, the current four-week time frame. Um, and prices have been relatively in line with our expectations. Um, if, you know, about six months ago we were projecting um, the bottom would come in around 90, 90 to 95 cents a pound. Um, and the USDA has been re reporting in a range between 93 and 97 cents per pound uh, here in, in recent weeks. Um, and, and some rather impressive volume uh, in, in terms of the prices that are, are being shown for whole birds. Uh, from here, we do anticipate we'll see a general appreciation in whole bird prices. Um, that that 93 to 97 cents a pound is roughly a, a 15 to 20 percent increase uh, when compared with where prices were a year ago. Um, and we think overall uh, we'll see inflation of somewhere around 7 to 10 percent when when all is said and done uh, for 2020. Um, and again, just keeping in mind a general appreciating market, but but more players are are expected to come into the market early in 2020 to get their their needs done for for whole birds. My thanks to Feedstuff's editor Chris Welshins and Brian Ernest of IHS Market for their discussion of the poultry markets and what's moving the needle in those sectors. A more in-depth look at the poultry and egg business can be found in the upcoming Feedstuff's Poultry Special Report. Subscribers will receive this special report in the mail with the March issue of Feedstuffs. If you're not already a subscriber, you can go to Feedstuffs.com and subscribe in time to get your copy of the special report. You can also visit with us at the upcoming Midwest Poultry Convention in Minneapolis, and we'll have a copy for you there as well. Thanks again to our sponsor of this episode of Feedstuffs in Focus, Hogslat and Georgia Poultry. New for 2020, the Classic Pullet Feed Pan. Built to handle the most aggressive birds, the Classic Pullet features an anti-rotation clip, feed shutoff slide, and a shallow divided pan. You can learn more about it at hogslat.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs in Focus. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And you can check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.